Um, at this time, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> In the early 2000s, the Discovery Channel decided to largely move away from its previous format of documentaries and technical series, and instead they decided to push in the direction of what is now called edutainment. A lot of new words coming out lately, and this is one I particularly don't like. But one of the most well-received shows that they began to produce was a show called Mythbusters. The concept is very simple. Find a stated, commonly believed fact or commonly held belief, and then test it against science. And this ranged from, is it actually dangerous to fill your gas tank while your engine is running, to can duct tape hold an airplane wing together while in flight, or is it possible for a motorcycle to drive fast enough on, uh, so as to ride on top of water? And does anyone here remember that show? Anyone ever see that show? Oh, some, yeah. Um, the reason the show was so well received, and even made 299 episodes, honestly, I feel like if you're at 299, just do the one more. Uh, it was due to the fact that it challenged a lot of people's commonly held beliefs. It challenged urban legend. It challenged a lot of what people had often stated as fact. Myths are stories. They are ideas that are by nature interesting, but they are also by nature untrue. And there are many myths that you have heard and that you have believed in your lifetime. As Christians, we are called to reject and to avoid myths about spiritual things that would cause us to misunderstand or dishonor God. One of the main themes of 1 Timothy is about confronting and rejecting false teachers, especially their wicked perversions of the truth. The Apostle Paul provided this letter to Timothy as a way to bolster him as he stood against the divisive and distorted doctrine of those who were turning aside from the true gospel. Here's how Paul encourages Timothy. Look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 7. He writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this book of 1 Timothy, where we can hear exactly what we are to understand about the church, and in particular today as we consider the topic of false teachers, as we introduce this, this theme that will be prevalent in this book, I pray, God, that you would help us to have discernment. Help us as Christians who often hear truth claims made by people who, like this, have no understanding of the things which they are saying. God, please help us to be Christians with a discerning ear. Help us to formulate our understanding of truth based upon the Scripture, not based upon our own opinion or desires. And God, I pray that today as we come before your word, whatever you teach us, that we would humbly submit to us to it. Help me to speak accurately and truthfully. And Lord, I pray that you would give great wisdom now to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Our approach to the text this morning is simply going to have two distinct halves. First, we're going to do a running commentary, just walk through the text together and see the various things that Paul has to say to Timothy. And then what we are going to do is spend a little bit of time considering some of the common distortions of the gospel that we see around us in our day. We begin here with verse number three. Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia. Let's just get the timeline straight here in our minds. Last week, we talked a little bit about the origins of Paul and Timothy's relationship, but where we left it was basically when Paul had gone off to Rome to prison and where he was under house arrest and where Timothy had gone off to Ephesus. Well, fast forward a little while, Paul was in prison for two years, and then he was released. And we know that during that time, he had gone around to various places and that he had served in various forms of missionary work. And Timothy, after those two years, probably desired to go back with Paul. But it says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia. In other words, Paul was released, and then he goes to Macedonia. And instead of going back with Paul, Paul says, no, Timothy, I know what you want. But instead, please stay there in Ephesus. I want you there. And this letter comes about a year later as a response to Timothy, explaining to him all of the things that are going on there in the church and how to care for them. So, as we come to this passage, we see that Paul is writing to Timothy out of Paul's freedom, but he also is about to go back into his second imprisonment that will result in his, uh, his execution. So this particular letter was written roughly three years into Timothy's time as the pastor. And when Paul was released from prison, it seems that Timothy's mind was set on leaving. Now, I've known some pastors before who are desirous to leave their church. And when I've spoken to them, their desire to leave the church often revolves around the fact that there is trouble in the church. There are people that are very difficult to work with, people that are unkind, unloving to one another, people who have dissensions among one another. There is often some kind of power struggle between the elder board or deacon board and the pastor, and there are people involved that have made life miserable for the pastor, and so what they begin to do is look for greener pastures somewhere else. And I don't believe this is probably usually the best way for them to operate, but many times they just leave and hand the church off to someone else, and they'll say something like, I just feel that I've reached the limit of my potential in this location. And so they begin moving in a new direction. Well, I feel like Timothy probably was in that place, and we see that he was challenged by many different people in many different ways throughout the course of this book. And you're going to see that this young pastor had a lot on his plate, and by God's grace, Paul says, I want you to stay. And notice the reason Paul wants him to say, stay. What was the purpose? Paul required him to stay there, not come back as a missionary. Verse 3 says, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The question that we need to answer now is what exactly is doctrine? The word itself in Greek literally just means teaching. In other words, he says, don't let anyone teach any different teaching. It's kind of a funny way of putting it, which is often why we like to use the word doctrine. However, when used by Paul, the word doctrine also carries with it a heavier weighted meaning. It's more than just the take it or leave it kind of instruction. It's more than just the way in which you fill up your gas tank in your car or the way in which you make your path through the grocery store. You can have ways to instruct people to 
uh, find better avenues to operate in their life that don't matter at all. But here he's talking about biblical and spiritual instruction. And here what he says to them is quite, to Timothy, is quite simply, stay there so that people will not teach inappropriate falsehoods about the gospel. New covenant doctrine is the authoritative and apostolic truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he says, don't let anyone mess that up. It is what God has provided for us and the result of having everything that we need for life and godliness. Doctrine is objective and settled truth, not subjective feelings about what the Bible says. And so Paul is not surprised that false teaching arose in Ephesus. In fact, if you remember back to last week, we spent a little bit of time eavesdropping on that last conversation that Paul had with the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20. Well, what we're going to do is let's return there and eavesdrop on that conversation for just a little bit longer as we read Paul's warning to those elders in the same church where Timothy is now serving. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So what does Paul mean by a different doctrine? Well, here we see that it is a twisting of Scripture or a twisting of apostolic teaching that was designed to draw professing disciples of Jesus away from Christ and instead follow the false teachings of a man. Now, perhaps the clearest picture of this we find in the entire New Testament is located in uh, 1 John. The events that precipitated John's writing of that book were such as these. There was a church that worshiped the Lord together. These people gathered faithfully. They were close, it seems, to one another. Shoulder to shoulder, they would sing songs to the Lord. But eventually, there arose a people within the church who believed false teachings, and eventually they departed from the church, displaying their lives to be apostates. And in 1 John chapter 2, we read that these people are literally called antichrists. And in that same passage, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued on with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In other words, somebody could be here present with us, but not be of us. In other words, these people who professed the name of Christ and appeared to be Christian for a time, eventually, by their departure from the church and their rejection of the true teaching of the apostles, it was made clear that they were never of us. They were never saved to begin with. They simply began to eventually show their true colors. So Paul tells Timothy not to permit anyone to teach these false doctrines, but he continues to elaborate on this prohibition in verse 4 and says, "...nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith." Now, there's a great deal of debate as to the specifics of what exactly are the myths and genealogies targeted here. And although we don't know for sure, we can narrow down what's going on here a little bit by Paul's own writing. Paul reiterates the same point later on in this book, in chapter 4, verse 7, by saying, "...have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness." There are two adjectives that are used to describe these myths. They are 
irreverent and they are silly. Let's just drill down on that just a little bit. The word irreverent here is the same word which is often translated profane in the Bible. The word originates from the concept that unclean people were not permitted into clean locations. And if you cross the threshold of that building in that condition, you would profane the building. So this kind of myth that he is mentioning describes bringing unholy concepts or conversation that is ungodly into the teaching of the church. Uh, Lately, I've been listening to a very interesting podcast. It is produced by Christianity Today. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's basically a documentary of what happened to the ministry of Mark Driscoll. For those who don't know, this is a man who built an empire in the Pacific Northwest only to see his church movement crumble due to certain sinful behaviors in his own life. And as I was listening to the unfolding story of all the things that were going on behind the scenes in this church, I was struck by something very profound. Long ago, before the church situation crumbled over there in Seattle, long before the public realizations that resulted in the downfall of this man in this church, there was a church that I served in Queens, and uh, the elders of that church saw that there were individuals within our congregation who had begun seeking this man out and following after his teachings. And as a matter of assistance to the body, the elders there determined it was wise to inform the congregation, we believe this man is a false teacher. And what did we have to go on at that time? Well, one of the main evidences that caught our attention was the profane way that he would speak. One of his nicknames that was given to him by one of his closest friends was the cussing pastor. And although there were certainly other concerns that we mentioned to our people, this was one telltale sign that something was rotten. He was not interested in godliness. He was pushing all of the boundaries of morality that he could and still hold his position. The second objective, uh, or adjective rather, that Paul uses to describe these myths is the word silly. That's the word that's used here in the ESV. But the word literally means words that come from old women. Now, ladies of the elderly sort here in the room, please know I don't mean this to insult you, uh, but this word is an idiom. It's just like in English we have the term wives' tales. And this word is an idiom that is referencing worthless or exaggerated conversation. And we're called to avoid talking just for the sake of talking. And he says these people love to hear their own voices and they love to make up stories. But you're going to notice that these old wives' tales that he mentions have a specific bent to them. It's not just that they're fanciful, made-up stories. Notice he contrasts them with godliness by including that simple word, rather. He says, rather train yourselves for godliness. Rather than entertaining these kinds of conversations, The opposite of that, the alternative to that, is training yourself for godliness. The two things are mutually exclusive. Now, we also see that Paul warns against arguing about genealogies back in chapter 1. And I've seen a lot of strange causes for division within the church in my time in ministry, but I have never seen anybody do this, where they, they come in with their family tree that's been passed down to them for a few generations, and they walk in, and they go across the aisle to the other side, and they pull it out and say, see, I told you, look at who I'm related to, and then begin to make some kind of a statement about their own value within the church based upon somebody who has been long dead in their past of their family. 
I've never seen that, and unlikely, it is unlikely that that kind of thing would take place here in this church. We as Americans do not highly value our genealogies as most people throughout history have, but this is something that was certainly problematic in the church at Ephesus. And there's a lot of debate over exactly what these arguments were. The Scripture doesn't elaborate or tell us, but most likely it had something to do with claims of authority based on relationships to people that had gone on before, possibly even people in Scripture. So let's think about it. Imagine that you are living in the first century, you are part of the church at Ephesus, and you are living there roughly 30 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And someone comes in, and they bring their family tree with them to show you, hey, look, my grandfather is Simeon. That is the guy that held Jesus as a baby and blessed him when Jesus was just eight days old and being presented at the temple. That guy who's in your Bible, he's my grandfather and using that as some kind of a claim to authority. Or, hey, my dad is the one who helped Jesus carry the cross to Calvary. Don't you think that gives me some kind of value here? Don't you think you should be listening to what I said? Jesus couldn't even carry that cross. My dad did that for him up that hill. And we actually know, for example, that that guy's sons were part of the church. We see that in the book of Acts. Perhaps somebody could claim, hey, my uncle was the man that was born blind, that Jesus healed. Or possibly these claims of authority were based on Old Testament relations that go back to Abraham or the kings of the Old Testament. And part of the reason it's very likely that these have a Jewish bent to them rather than a pagan bent to them is due to the fact that later in this very same section we're going to see that Paul deals much with the law and he's referencing the law of the Old Covenant. So it seems as though there is a Jewish element to what is taking place. However, that's not necessarily true. It's possible that there was some kind of mythological pagan connection to what was going on here, because as you may know, many people in the ancient world claimed to be related to pagan deities or demigods like Zeus or Hercules. Well, my great-great-great-grandfather, well, he was related to Hercules. And that could cause all sorts of problems within theology as well. And perhaps that's what he means by myths and fables that he mentions here in this book. Or it's possible that there was some other issue entirely that's just been lost to the ideas of history. But regardless, it was being used as a divisive tool to give credence to false teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, what happens here at this juncture is Paul moves beyond the words that false teachers are saying, and he moves into the motivations behind those words. He explains that true teachers of the word are ministering to the people out of love for them. And the love that true teachers have is the overflow of a heart that is pure and a conscience that is clean. Now, interestingly, I find this fascinating. These two terms actually have a very similar meaning in the Scripture. If you do a word study of these two words uh, or phrases, uh, having a pure heart or a good conscience, you'll see that they're almost interchangeable in the way that they are operating throughout the, the Bible. However, the language of having a pure heart is much more commonly found in the Old Testament and in Jewish circles when the language is being used. However, when we see the audience primarily being a Gentile audience, instead it will be called a good conscience. And that is dealing with the fact that the Hebrew people often spoke of the heart, 
and the Gentile people often spoke of the mind, but the way that they were using the terms were synonymous in many ways. The heart does not mean just the physical organ in your body that pumps blood. It is the seat of the emotions and the will of a person, just like the conscience is used in Greek literature. So what we see here is something interesting. He's just basically using the same term twice, and he says, this is where the love is coming from, from those people who are teaching. They are those who actually, before God, have a clean conscience, those who have a pure heart, one who have been cleaned by God. But in contrast, these false teachers seem to have anything but gentleness that flows from those things. As we read earlier, they were like ravenous wolves who had come into the flock and were making a meal of these precious sheep of God. But how does this happen? Verse 6 says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about uh, which they speak. Next week, we're going to focus in more on the legal aspects, on the Old Covenant law aspect of this verse. But for now, what I want you to see are three things that shift some people in the direction of being a false teacher. The first is that we see some people swerve. You know what that means to swerve because you've driven on the Southern State Parkway before. People swerve out of the right lane. They are driving what seems to be the right direction, then all of a sudden, and it seems like there's no reason for them to do so, but then they invade your lane. Well, what we see here is that there are people that appear to be riding the right lane of doctrine and theology, but all of a sudden they swerve away from that. One of the reasons it's really hard for NASA to determine if the Earth is ever in danger of being hit by an asteroid just comes down to the idea of precision. If the trajectory that they are tracking is off by just a millimeter, then that stone that is way out there in space is going to miss us by hundreds and hundreds of miles. If a plane is heading for JFK and takes off from Hong Kong, but it's off by just one degree, that plane is going to end up south of Philadelphia. It's not going to come here at all. Paul says that there are some who swerve away from the faith. But what you need to understand here is this swerving is often subtle and doesn't always look like somebody is jerking away from all of the truths. Oftentimes, it is a slow drift away from what is true and into what is false. And in doing so, he says, it causes them to wander away into vain discussion of the kind of things that confuse or distort the truth of the gospel. The second thing that we see here is that these people have a hunger to be teachers. They just want to be heard. They love to have an audience. They want to gather around them as many itching ears as possible, and they are going to do whatever it takes to get there. And we will see more clearly later on in this book that it is often at the heart of lowering the standards within the church in order to just draw a bigger crowd. And the third thing that we see here is that these people lack knowledge. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, we see God say, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You can't teach what you don't know. Sadly, we are living in a world where pastors are far more interested in learning how to be smooth public speakers or CEOs or administrators or social media gurus or event coordinators rather than humble shepherds who just study God's Word rigorously. And the sad result is that often great harm is done to many sheep in the process. For the remainder of our time, what we're going to do this morning 
is go Mythbusters on a couple of the main things that we see distorting the gospel around us today. I'm going to consider five false gospels that are common in our time and in this place so that this church might be well prepared to guard against them. But before we do, there's a few clarifications that I would like to make. As you can clearly see in this passage in 1 Timothy, it is the role of a pastor to guard the flock from false teaching. Protecting the flock is one of the highest priorities of those who are called by God to serve in ministry. However, that does not mean that you as a member of the church are just supposed to put up your feet and ask the elders to do all of the watch work for you. Rather, we are all called to pay attention. Listen carefully to what others are saying, including me. Part of your role and responsibility as a church member is to measure what the teachers and preachers of this church are saying and measure them how? Against the Word of God. This is why I always want to start my sermons with this little phrase, please open your Bibles, because I want you to see that what I am telling you is not merely my opinion. This is directly from God's Word. I want real-time fact-checking, and if there is ever a time where I wander off into silly myths or irreverent uh, silly ideas, then your job is to call me to repentance for the sake of Christ here at Gateway. And now you should know that the following five Gospels that I'm going to mention a, they have a tendency to overlap. So although I'm going to try to specifically identify a few of them, they often blend several ideas into some unholy stew of heresy. And also, this list is by no means exhaustive. And finally, before we jumped in, you need to know that there are many people who are starting to swerve in these directions, but I would say they have not fallen off the cliff into heresy yet. They are just being persuaded by false teachings that are dangerous. So, as I present these things to you, I encourage you to listen carefully as this sampling of dangerous things that we see around us by those who claim to be Christians. So, with all these things in mind, let's consider five false gospels that we see prevalent today. First, we see the gospel of works. One of the most strongly opposed concepts in the entire New Testament is the idea that you are able to achieve salvation by your own good works. However, that concept is the exact core of every single religion other than true Christianity. The most common religion here on Long Island is the religion of Roman Catholicism. It is one of the most highly populous Roman Catholic areas of this country. 52% of the people on Long Island claim to be Roman Catholic. And although there are many disagreements that we would have with Roman Catholics, the one central dividing point comes down to this one question. How is someone justified or made right with God? In Roman Catholic theology, the answer to that is you do good works, you go to church, you get baptized in the Catholic church. You go to confession, you confess those sins to a priest who will then take them to God and give you instructions. You pray to the saints, and you seek the overflow of their merit for yourself. You perform acts of penance to rebalance the scales of your sin when you do disobey God. And you give money to the church, of course. And after all of that, your bad works will probably still outweigh your good works, so you need to burn off the rest of your sin in an unidentified number of years in purgatory that can only be shortened by financial gifts by your remaining family, who live past your death. Salvation by works is the idea that you can do something, that you can do anything to let you into heaven. But what does the Bible say about that? Paul, who was a better person than any of us, writes 
in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Anyone who teaches you that you are saved by doing anything other than falling upon the gracious love of the Lord Jesus Christ is lying to you. Anyone who teaches you that you must get to heaven through any series of check marks that you have to put on some kind of paper, things that you must do, then you need to understand they are confused, they are leading you astray. The only way that we are able to get to heaven is through the precious blood of Jesus who sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. So run from those who teach the gospel of works. Secondly, let's consider the gospel of prosperity. One disturbing trend in recent decades is the rise of the prosperity gospel. There are many such preachers in the world today, but the one whose name is probably most well-known to you would be the man Joel Osteen. His most famous sermon on YouTube is called The Power of I Am. And if you just hear the title, you will think, man, that sounds excellent, because Jesus says, I am. Back in Exodus chapter 3, from the burning bush, we hear I am as the name of God. But instead about instead of speaking about the power of God who is I am, he instead speaks about your power in you as you say I am. I can't think of almost anything that is more blasphemous than for us to take on God's name for ourselves. He speaks about the power that you have to get what you want from God, not because of who he is, but because of who you are. He says, quote, get up in the morning and invite good things into your life. And he says it with a much nicer smile than I have. I am blessed, I am strong, I am talented, I am disciplined, I am focused, I am prosperous. And when you talk like that, talent gets summoned by Almighty God. Go find that person. Health, strength, abundance, discipline starts heading your way. What you're going to find in this sermon is a stunning similarity to many modern self-help books. But what you will not find in this sermon is a single mention of Jesus Christ or the salvation that he provides. This is, according to YouTube, the most famous sermon on their website. This sermon is all about seeking temporal blessing and the same treasure that this world provides rather than Jesus, the true treasure of heaven. The prosperity gospel is attractive to unsaved people because it promises all the same things that the world promises just it does so in religious language. If God's love is to be understood and to be tabulated and calculated based upon the levels of our health and our wealth, then the apostles must have missed the memo. All of them were mistreated, and most of them were executed for teaching the true gospel. Paul was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned until they thought he was dead, and it says he was in danger nonstop. Often he said he was hungry. Now the gospel does not promise you stuff. It promises you Jesus. And if you can say, all I have is Christ, what more could you possibly need? Let's reject the false gospel of prosperity. Thirdly, the gospel of easy believism. Many of you have had opportunity now to meet my friend and my mentor, Ed Moore, who tells a story of when he was a youth pastor in Georgia, getting ready to go on a trip to youth camp, and all of these students were packed into a school bus, and there was a man in the church who was well-meaning but very inaccurate who stepped onto the school bus, and he said something like this, Listen up, kids. I know that all of you are going to fall into lots of sin. 
you're probably going to fall into alcoholism and sexual sin, and for the rest of your lives, you're going to be all over the map in terms of your rejection and rebellion from the, as you depart from the church. So what I want you to do right now is I just want you to pray this prayer with me and say the words that I say so that no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're safe. And so that if you die, God will still allow you to go to heaven. Now, that's not the exact words he said. I don't remember them identically. But the concept of easy believism comes from the misconception of what makes somebody a Christian. If you were to ask a pollster in the United States how many Christians are there, there is literally no way that they could ever give you any kind of accurate survey of the populace. This is because there are now and always have been many people who self-identify as Christians, as people of God, but who God would say to you on the last day, Depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. We are not saved based upon some decision that we make or a card that we sign or a prayer that we pray or some kind of activity such as baptism. A truly saved person has been acted upon by God and have had their heart and life changed by Him. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... This little word, in Christ, that phrase, in Christo, in Greek, that that phrase is so important. It is a way that he speaks about your salvation. There are two kinds of people, those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. And he says, if you are in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead and gone. Behold, the new has come. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that a tree will be known by its fruit. The narrow road leads to heaven, and there are few who find it. Only those who persevere to the end will be saved, Jesus says. A true Christian is going to be transformed by God, and they're going to be on an upward trajectory. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, he says of himself, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I push for that. I keep going up the hill of sanctification. I do that because of God. And then he says, if anyone, or if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. In other words, he's saying to them, listen, I get the fact that you might look at me and think, wow, that guy's mature. That guy's that guy's a good Christian. That guy's an apostle. But he says, if you don't think this way, if you're a true Christian, God will convince you of this, that you must press towards the goal as well. True Christians are not complacent. They are not lethargic. They are not unconcerned about the things of the Lord. He says, even to those, who, uh, even to those Christians who were not thinking correctly, God will reveal to you that you must likewise pursue him in this way. Will God keep everyone who is saved? Yes. Will he complete our salvation as both author and finisher of our faith? Yes. But God does not promise to keep those who are false converts from falling away. He did not keep Judas. He did not keep Demas. He did not keep the false teachers of 1 Timothy or 1 John. Why? Because they were not true children of God. The true gospel includes spiritual growth, and it demands that we pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. So let's reject the gospel of easy believism. Fourthly, there's a false gospel that I refer to as the gospel of emotionalism. 
Now, m- many churches do this. They begin to slowly and subtly swerve because what they choose to do is select style over substance. Such teachers are not concerned about getting God's Word correct. They are much more concerned about the feelings of the people who are gathered. All of their messages are going to intentionally be considered positive and encouraging, and all of their music will be top quality, it will be well-practiced, they will never miss a note, and the ambiance and the temperature will be perfectly set to produce a particular mood, and all with the goal of having people walk out of church saying, that felt good, I want to come back. If you're following our Bible reading plan, then yesterday you would have been reading about the false prophet named Hananiah. We find that in Jeremiah chapter 28. This guy says to the people of Judah, hey everybody, guess what? I know that we are in judgment, I know that we're in Babylon, but guess what? God's not mad anymore, and in the next year, he's going to release us and send us back to to Jerusalem. And in that moment, uh, Jeremiah confronts him and he says, you know, I hope that this is true. I, I, I really wish this was true. But eventually God speaks to Jeremiah and says, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I didn't tell him that. And essentially what God says to Jeremiah is tell that guy he's going to die because of what he said. He put words in my mouth. But why did Hananiah do this? I think his intentions were what many people would consider noble. He just wanted to make people feel better. He wanted people to think things are going to improve. Let's name it, and then we'll claim it. Let's speak it into existence, and then it will happen. And as he does this, God says to the entire people, not just Hananiah, but all of the people who listen to him, my yoke on your shoulders has gone from wood to iron. He was upset not only with the person who spoke those words, but the people who listened to him rather than all of the commands and the prophecies that he had given through true prophets like Jeremiah. Hananiah had done this in an attempt to assuage the emotions of the people. And false teachers put people in a precarious place by trying to do the exact same thing now. Let's just not talk about hell. Let's just not talk about sin. Let's not use words like repentance. Let's not say things that would be offensive. Let's try to cut off all the sharp edges of Christianity. Let's just try to simplify it, is often the word that they use, I would use the term water it down, and let's do that for the purpose of making people feel good. The gospel is not just about feeling good. The gospel is about your objective relationship with God, not your subjective feelings about Him and your experience with Him. So let's reject the gospel of emotionalism. Lastly, let's consider what some have called the gospel of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I would argue that this is perhaps the most pervasive and false go- uh, strongest false gospel teaching in our country today. Now, this might sound similar to the false gospel of works, and for good reason. The two usually operate hand in hand and sometimes morph back and forth from one to the other in both the mind and the mouth of the false teachers who speak them. But moralism is an approach to the Bible in which the pastor or preacher will simply tell you, let's be more like these heroes that we see here on these pages. Let's dare to be a Daniel. Let's be a man after God's own heart, just like David. Let's be a good leader like Moses. Let's be a man of prayer like Nehemiah. Let's be an evangelist like Peter. Let's be a church planter like Paul. But we are not simply called to a life of imitation of these men and women who are heroes in the Scripture. If you read through Hebrews chapter 11, the most important phrase that is repeated is by faith. 
These people who did these things did not do them, as you could alternatively write it, by their skill or by their wisdom or by their intelligence or by their ability or by their strength. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham heard the word of the Lord, and he left his homeland, and he went where God told him to go. By faith, they were seeking a city, a better one than we have here. It is by faith that they were able to do things, which implies and directly states that they were leaning upon the strength of the Lord and his ability to accomplish things for them. We are called to fall under the absolute lordship of of Christ. And so what many people have often done in their churches and in their teaching is basically just have a bunch of followers who are trying their best to imitate ungodly sinners. People like David, who, yes, was a man after God's own heart, but also fell immensely. And if we are following them, we're going to see similar problems within our church. Why is it called moralistic therapeutic deism? Because many people feel better when they are pursuing some kind of a goal like this. It makes them feel better to follow the traditional activities of the church without actually seeking Jesus at all. They do churchy things because it feels right. It, it provides a rhythm for their life and an outlet for their emotion, but it denies the reality of God and turns everything into nothing more than a glorified pep talk. A pep talk that repeats the mantra, just be better, just be better, just be better, which is a heavy yoke to bear. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So brothers and sisters, let us trust in the true gospel of Jesus Christ without distorting, without falling away into silly myths of our day. Let's reject false teaching, and if there is ever a hint of it here, we need to snuff it out by the grace of God. And so I just encourage all of you, let's, like Timothy, be on our guard and guard against these kinds of false teachings that often arise. And I say to anyone here who is asking the question, look, you talked a lot about false gospels. I don't even know if I know what the real one is. I don't even know if I'm saved. Well, if that's you, I want to encourage you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible teach about him? It teaches that he is the eternal God from eternity past, and that he was worshiped by angels from the point of creation, and that he lived in heaven without any kind of flaw in him whatsoever. But God sent him here to earth to live a life like you and I. He sent him to live a life that was exactly like yours, filled with all of the suffering that you experience, except one thing. Jesus never sinned. He always perfectly obeyed his Father. He was always perfectly righteous. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, so he should have lived on in perpetuity and should have never experienced the taste of death, but God substituted his own son, Jesus, for sinners like you and I. He took Jesus to the cross and there he was crucified by man and judged by God, where God poured out his wrath on him so that we who believe in his name might never experience judgment for our sins. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, being vindicated by the Father, revealing that his life and his death were of value for salvation for anyone who would believe. And Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives to be your Savior right now. So if you will only bow the knee to Jesus, trust in him, believe that his death was of value to save you from your sins, then you too will be saved. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. 
We thank you for the good news that Jesus died for sinners like us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand more and more what your Scripture teaches about the true gospel so that we might be able to easily locate a counterfeit, that we might be able to see these things as myths that arise. Lord, I pray that you would give great discernment to us. Help us to be a church that raises high the banner of the true Christ and the true gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.